0: Conspiracy show with Richard Serre from Zuma Radio AM 740.
1: I tell you, I always love to start a show off this way. The conspiracy show is proud to welcome a new affiliate this week, KVOK AM560. Kodiak, Alaska. Welcome, welcome to Kodiak. Back in the 1700s, Kodiak, Alaska, when Alaska was owned by the Ruskies, Kodiak was the capital. Of Russian Alaska. So they go a little bit of history woven into the proceedings here. KVOK AM 560, Kodiak, Alaska. Welcome aboard and thank you. And I look forward to hearing from uh, listeners up in uh, Kodiak uh, soon. I uh, heard from a very welcome phone call this afternoon. Uh, a gentleman left a voicemail um, message for me here at the radio station our flagship station here at AM740 in Toronto. And uh, I had lost track of this individual. I, quite frankly, feared for his life. I thought he was swept away uh, during Sandy, Hurricane Sandy. He resides from Somerville, New Jersey. And uh, hadn't heard from him for several weeks after the the big storm in October. Then I received a letter from him uh, on End Times Press letterhead saying that he was okay, but uh, his apartment building down in Somerville, and I'd been there and visited uh, with Nils Hammerin, his apartment had been decimated by the storm. The roof was torn off, uh, walls caved in and so forth. He was relocated. Uh, And then I didn't hear from him for a while. I read his letter on the air, tried to contact him, and months went by. It's now five months since Sandy. And uh, people were starting to email me, hearing rumors Nils and his wife have been taken to a FEMA camp. Nils is, you know, uh, where is he? Is he relocated to Central America? Anyway, today I got a phone call. Uh, Nils is alive. He's well. He's back in his home in Somerville, New Jersey, and I'm hoping to hear from him a little bit later in the program. And we'll do that at uh, the bottom of the hour, as we say. Uh, We're going to open up the phone lines, and uh, we call this segment Ask Richard Anything. I've got a few uh, topic suggestions I'll throw out there. Uh, We can talk about uh... the uh... the the investiture of the new pope we can talk about the uh... uh... the european economic crisis what's happening here in north america are we heading towards a a complete economic collapse as i unfortunately believe we are Uh, i think this recovery is total nonsense Uh, however the mainstream press just keeps shoveling and shoveling uh... and we keep buying and buying for some reason anyway we'll get to that a little bit later those of you who listen to this program i think have a pretty good sense of where I stand politically. I am conservative. Uh, I don't, as a rule, I don't belong to any political party. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a political atheist. I get a little sick and tired of always voting for the least, uh, you know, the, the, the less of the three evils, if you will, up here in Canada. We have, you know, essentially a three-party system. So pretty conservative. However, I have to tell you, I thought Hugo Chavez was a good guy. I thought he was exactly what Venezuela and what South America needed and what they need, and so I noted his passing with some sadness. I know he got uh, portrayed in a certain light in the uh, again in the mainstream media as a, uh, a dangerous uh, as, as a socialist as a as a. Uh, a supporter of terrorism, of course, that that anyone who who challenges the status quo in the IMF is automatically seen as a friend of Al-Qaeda and and so forth. I don't believe that for a moment. Uh, But Hugo Chavez, a lot of speculation now swirling around that he didn't die of natural causes or he didn't die from cancer, that he may have in fact been poisoned. That from the president of um, Bolivia. And uh, so I thought, let's bring someone on who knew uh, who knew Hugo Chavez, who met Hugo Chavez and interviewed him uh, shortly after a, a botched coup attempt back in 2002. And uh, I'm really delighted to have this gentleman on the program. He's been with us several times before. he's always welcome. I consider him to be maybe the last true investigative journalist working uh, anywhere in North America. Again, Greg Pallast is an investigative journalist, writes a weekly column for Vice magazine. He also reports for the BBC and The Guardian, among others. You can read his reports at gregpallast.com. That's P-A-L-A-S-T. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, Armed Madhouse, and the highly acclaimed Vultures Picnic, He's best known in the United States for uncovering Catherine Harris's purge of black voters from Florida's voter rolls in 2000. Greg Palast, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
2: Great, Richard. Thanks for having me on.
1: You, uh, you were asked to, to go to to Bolivia, I believe. Venezuela. Sorry, Venezuela. Actually, Bolivia. Venezuela. Uh, by the Was it initially by the BBC in 2002 after this botched coup attempt? Take me back there. Set the table. What was happening yeah. in Venezuela in April yeah. of 2002?
2: Well, actually, I knew Hugo Chavez pretty well, but I didn't know who the heck this guy was. Actually, at the beginning of 2002, when uh, this uh, dark little woman came up to me and said, Hugo Chavez, President Chavez needs you in Caracas right now. I said, well, who the hell is that? I hate to admit it. Sorry, my, I'm a little cold here. A little bit of a flu. But the, um, you know, uh, he said, there's going to be a coup d'etat. aren't there lots of coup d'etats down in those places? And he says, they're going to undo all his work. I said, well, so why should I go? I mean, no one in uh, that listens to BBC or CBC, 92% of the people couldn't pick out Venezuela if it whacked him on the head on a map, right? And so, uh, but I listened. I studied up and I said, "Oh my God, this this guy's doing something incredibly revolutionary and extraordinary." And I think they're going to have to kill him. And uh, so I said, "Get me down there because I think his idea is that if if, if there are cameras on, it's harder to kill someone when the cameras are rolling, right?" And uh, but in uh, no one believed me. And then the uh, then he was kidnapped. Chavez was kidnapped. By the head of the Chamber of Commerce, which uh, gives a new meaning to corporate takeover. I'll say, Uh, he was a guy named Carmona, who was a U.S. oil company executive, and got some some uh, old right wing uh, fruitcakes in the army to to grab Chavez, put him in a helicopter, and Chavez actually told me he thought he was he assumed like you know like they did in Chile and other places that when they veered out over the ocean that they were just going to, you know, send them for a swim from 2,000 feet up. and uh, But they didn't. They landed him on an island and put, uh, told some young uh, uh, kids who were like Chavez, black and Indian, and uh, he was the first black president of uh, Venezuela, and uh, they put these kids in charge. And so they, as far as they were concerned, he was one of theirs, so they handed him his so one of the guards handed him a cell phone
3: and <laughs> said,
2: "Make a call so uh he called Fidel Castro, then he called his daughter, then he called the head of the air force and uh and uh, that's how he uh got out and then of course, about a quarter million people came roaring out of the mountains out of the poor uh,
1: um rancheros
2: pavillas. yeah, they called ranchos and um and, uh, you know, marched on the presidential palace. There's a huge public uprising. And uh, by the time I got to Venezuela, he was back in his office. There were bullet holes all over the place, but he was back in his office.
1: That's and pretty unprecedented. He, uh, That's pretty unprecedented for, for some. Yeah. once they're put in the hole like that for them to come back. But he got tipped off, didn't he? By Was it one of yeah. his ministers of... Uh...
2: Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> excuse me. Originally, the coup was supposed to go off on March 15, of like a... 11 years ago this week, and um, what happened was uh, um, the, uh, the uh, coup leaders got cold feet. So Bush sent down a new ambassador that week to kick some butt and say, get going. And they were very concerned because what happened was um, Gaddafi decided he was going to call for another Arab oil embargo, um, and as much to boost up the price of oil as to just create trouble. And um, so Ali, his oil minister, Ali Rodriguez, was also secretary general of OPEC. Venezuela is in OPEC, and um, is actually Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves, five times the reserves of Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's not insignificant, and not as you know, not as pumping as much yet, but uh, it's, it's all there.
1: And it's not the light crude; it it, it no, a little more to go to extract. Yeah,
2: crude. And so what happens, uh, Rodriguez? heard that Gaddafi was going to call for a a new boycott, a new uh, uh, Arab boycott. And the first thing Rodriguez did is, you know, we don't really need a global war, because that's what's going to happen. So he tried to talk Gaddafi out of it, but he immediately warned Chavez that they're going to have to take you out. Uh, Get ready. They're going to take you out right now, In the next couple days. They have to, um, because Venezuela broke the last Arab uh, embargo, and if one actually was launched Venezuela would not be able to to break the embargo again, because if Venezuela wanted to, of course, get the oil money for its people. So, uh, so Chavez got the word, and one of the things is one of the, you know, even though it's a glorious story that all these people came out of the hills to save the uh, to save their elected president from a bunch of coup d'etat freaks, and oil company executives. Um, in fact, Chavez being warned put a, about 150 commandos inside the. False walls of the presidential palace. So when the coup leaders had their little inaugural ball, they really had an inaugural ball with a bishop and the, uh, it was just like a Genet play.
1: And the U.S. ambassador rushed down to congratulate them. The U.S. Them.
2: ambassador came down to this inaugural ball too and put his arms around the coup d'etat leaders. You know, it's like they're holding elected president hostage. And Charles Shapiro, the American ambassador, is down there grinning. It's like, you know, Americans don't see this stuff. This was like sickening to, the, to Latin Americans. So when uh, so the head of the air force said, "Well, either bomb you into rubble, or the the people will massacre you, or um, so we may not wait. We might just open, just uh, knock on the on the walls, and uh, you'll be greeted by guys with uh, some assault rifles and say hello." And uh, so they poured out of the goddamn walls, and um, that's what happened. Uh And but before they did, the coup uh, leaders who were told they had 48 hours to get Chavez back to his desk, left immediately and got him back in two hours. Um, so he was uh, you know, just two days in captivity. And the U.S., in the meantime, the New York Times editorializes that it's wonderful that Chavez has been overthrown, An elected president, right? This is our New York Times. The, um, the Bush administration is, is jumping up and down, isn't this wonderful? Um, And someone asked uh, Bush's press spokesman, Ari Fleischer, well, wait a minute, how can you be in favor of overthrowing an elected president? No one's doubted that Chavez won massively in his elections. Very popular. Um, And the answer uh, was, well, Bush, Bush spokesman said, well, winning an election doesn't make your government legitimate. Of course, <laughs> this is the guy that on Florida. You know, it's like, there you go. This is the victor of Florida, right?
1: Yeah. Greg Palest is with us, uh, the uh, best selling author of New York Times, best selling author of uh, uh, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, the best democracy money can buy. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, um, we'll tell you how you can watch his uh, his documentary, The Assassination of Hugo Chavez, which was made uh, just after the failed coup attempt, but, but um, yeah. we'll, we'll obviously. Uh, We'll look at that word assassination in an entirely new light now that he has passed. We'll take a time out, come back, and I want to find out exactly why Hugo Chavez was such a threat uh, to the West, Uh, even with all that oil. There must have been something else. We'll find out. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Never watch uh, the marathon man the night before uh, a dental appointment. Just a little hint I'll throw out there, a little tip for you. Greg Palast is with us. We're here talking about uh, the late Hugo Chavez, the late great. I call him great. I think he was a great man. Uh, A socialist, yes, to be sure, but the right man at the right time. Uh, for South America, speaking as uh, someone who's probably somewhere right of Attila the Hun. Uh, now, Greg, why was Hugo Chavez so demonized? In your documentary, I mean, you have a Pat Robertson yeah. there saying openly on television that this man should be assassinated and taken out. Yeah. Why did the Americans I mean, Pat hate him?
2: Robertson said, uh, Hugo Chavez thinks we're trying to assassinate him. I think we ought to just go ahead and do it. You know, he's sitting on that big pool of oil, and it's, uh, you know, sending some commandos. It's cheaper than a $200 billion war. You know, so, but Chavez, uh, you know, it actually wasn't the oil in the end. Of course, he raised the price of uh, the, the royalties paid by the oil companies, doubled them from 16 to 30%. And about the same time that uh, Sarah Palin did that as governor of Alaska. Yes. Shumai to your new uh, station in Kodiak. and um, the, uh, So, you know, they didn't have to kill him over the oil. They always worked that, that thing out. Uh, it's true that uh, he did grab the Heinz Plantation and the giant ketchup plant that was used to supply South America because uh, uh, Mr. Hines, otherwise known as Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, you know, um, refused to raise the minimum wage in uh, in Venezuela, so they closed the plant. Chavez had it taken over. That's why John Kerry was very upset that uh, he said that uh, George Bush wasn't tough enough on Hugo Chavez. I guess the only thing left was to you know finish off the bullet job, right?
1: But Chavez was. I mean, he shared that that the the, those, uh, the, the wealth generated by the oil. Revenues. He slashed yeah. poverty by, it was around 50% when he came in, and it went down to something like 29, less than 30% well, literacy. About
2: 70%. There were about yeah. a million people living. In the first oil boom. Venezuela actually made more money in the 70s than it has now on oil. It was pumping more. And uh, in the big rush up, and uh, the big embargo in the 70s, uh, you had a million people living in cardboard shacks around Caracas. All the money went back to New York and Miami and the big banks, which were when... That is why they had to put the bullet in him. Because I was trying to figure it out myself, and I was talking to him, and I was talking to the guys that seized him. By the way, I, I met with Carmona while he was under arrest before he escaped. The uh, the coup leader, I met with uh, his uh, his political opponents. The guy who ran against him for president. Some of these guys are pretty nice, actually. I don't think they're so evil, but they are. But what desert? What they said all that had that reason they had to get rid of Chavez. And you you said those magic words, IMF. What happened was is that we send money out into the world for uh, when we, not you and I, but you know, the, the, the rulers of our planet, our landlords, um, go get oil. They pay for oil to Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, but it comes right back, it turns right around. If you remember from the from the film Network, you know, the Mr. Beal, the money the Arabs have taken billions of dollars, and now we must get it back. That's right. Well, Venezuela always gave it back. It never,
1: and then some.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then some, because they'd suck out all the money from the rich plantation owners. So you'd send hundred million billion billion to Venezuela, and $120 billion came back. Um, so that Venezuelans, the average Venezuelan, never got anything. So Chavez said, okay, this... This business where all our money for oil goes right back to New York or is taken off and stolen to Miami or to to build mansions for the rich is not going to happen anymore. So he removed $20 billion worth of gold bars held uh, in Venezuela's name in the U.S. Federal Reserve and then used that, uh, uh, got rid of that and and used that money for micro loans, a massive micro business loan program in Venezuela. Suddenly poverty dropped from 70% to 20%. Uh, all the ran- those cardboard ranches were removed, and um, people were either given bricks to rebuild them, electricity, water, and about a half of the people instead of rebuilding to to uh, high rises. And in the bottom of every high rise is a Cuban doctor. That's why I gave oil to Cuba because Cuba had like this massive excess supply of doctors it was one thing they could produce. Venezuela had none, so it was an obvious deal. We'll trade the oil for the uh, for the doctors and engineers and. Uh, So what the big deal was that he was stopping that that financial flow. And what really upset the IMF, the IMF was going through uh, on behest of corporate powers. The IMF was imposing upon Latin America this new form of financial colonization so that Argentina was busted. Argentina was told, go free market. They did. They had a couple-year boom, and then pretty soon teachers and doctors are trying to find dinner out of garbage cans, places completely busted out. And um,
1: in comes Nestle's and and, and privatizes their water supply.
2: Yeah, Enron grabbed the water supply of Buenos Aires. Uh, The uh, Spanish Repsol, the oil company, grabbed Argentina's big oil supply. Um, The the French grabbed the uh, the electric systems. Same thing happened in Brazil. Same thing happened in Ecuador, where... Mm. um, uh, the oil company had to be handed over to both Chevron and then to Al Gore's company, um, um, Occidental Petroleum. And then a group of leaders came forward, in Ecuador, Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, who said, um, "We're not going to do it. You know, they and we're going to default. We're not going to pay these you serious charges because the money was going out, and they were the money of the countries was being put in the U.S. Federal Reserve." and at the World Bank at 1% at and 2% interest, they were then required to borrow back the money at 16% to back their banks. Mm-hmm. So if you keep lending at 2%, you're a poor nation, and you borrow it back at 16%, are you are pretty quickly doomed on that gerbil wheel. Right, so... And so then when these guys said, we're not going to do it anymore, we're not going to pay these vultures, um, the IMF said, okay, now we move in and we seize everything. We own your country. You're done. And uh, unless you can, you know, like they tie them to the railroad tracks, you know, unless you pay the mortgage note, right? And then Uncle Hugo wrote in and said, I'll just underwrite all the bonds. So he, he agreed to write all, underwrite all the bonds of Brazil, all the bonds of, of uh, Argentina, of Ecuador. And um, suddenly, uh, these guys didn't know, you know, that was it. They, were, they said, we don't need you anymore.
1: Adios so, IMF, yeah.
2: Yeah, so the Adios IMF. And so... The, even the, the Reagan administration actually even freaked out the earlier header of this stuff, and uh, but then uh, under uh, um, uh, Clinton, he said, "Okay, all right. What we'll do is we'll cut a deal where uh, basically Argentina defaulted. will pay you know they'll they'll pay you off later or some small amount because what could they do? Uh, according to Wall Street Journal, Hugo Chavez created the tropical IMF instead of the money going up to New York and Switzerland." and London and being borrowed back at, at usurious rates, the money just stayed in Latin America.
1: That's dangerous. Hugo, you have meddled with the primal order of nature, and you must atone. Now, the yeah. big question here, Greg, is, mm-hmm. was it cancer, or do you believe the Bolivian president who, who suspects that Hugo Chavez was poisoned?
2: My view, because I knew Chavez pretty well, and I knew, and by the way, I was deep in this stuff because... Nicolas Maduro, who's the acting president, and will probably win next month for president. Actually, flew up to New York at Chavez's request to go over the his information mine on assassination attempts. This is this is really serious stuff. But I think he beat the bullet on this. Uh, we like to think that great men only die from great causes. That gives us an excuse not to be great men ourselves. You know, not to make the leap to do something important. I think he beat their bullet. I think, uh, you know, he drank 40 cups of coffee a day, and he, and he hung around a lot of oil, which is toxic. And so I think he went his own way. And um, I don't think they got him. But they really tried. I've got to tell you, I, uh, I have some pictures I can finally release of, of uh, the, the incoming president meeting with me in my little uh, detective office in New York. And, you know, and we're comparing uh, the information we've each gotten from the security agencies and uh, his information. And we had, like, things like Wackenhut, uh, now Geo Corporation, which was on some – they were. They had something called the Third Ring. And we were trying to figure out what – are they talking about This Third Ring that uh, – we had some communique intercepts. And uh, some type of counter uh, espionage system involving the presidential palace was, was it another coup d'etat, was it assassination. I don't know what they had in mind. I can't really say. I can only – Know that they were hired by U.S. Homeland Security, and Homeland Security in the U.S. also just the same guys, the same company that fixed the election in Florida for George Bush was hired to fix the election in Venezuela. They stole all the um, the registration lists, voter registration lists, and were uh, I guess planning to monkey with it. And and then I published a story and busted it because it was the same guys that were that had fixed the race in Florida. So I knew how they were pulling it off, and that was under a U.S. Homeland Security contract um that was obviously confidential but you know I have my ways that's what I what Greg
1: That's called. what you do Greg we just have a couple of minutes let me ask you 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 met this man face to face on a number of occasions yes. uh you know he, we know how he was demonized what was your sense of the man i mean was he was he a a a a despot was he a kind um, um a populist what was he who was he
2: okay he was fdr i mean and just like fdr who had who was grandiose and and, and ham-handed uh, but he, was, he believed ultimately in democracy. He knew that if he didn't get elected, I mean, he, he lost one vote by half a percentage point. And dictators don't lose by half a percentage point. We, you know, I disagreed with some of his policies, and I let him know it, too. And I didn't think his opponents were all that, that uh, demonic. But I will say, this guy really cared for the poor. You know, he made a big socialist speech. There was no socialist. He was just a reformist, more like uh, FDR. But he really, truly believed he would put his—he would literally—he was more than ready to put his his body in front of the bullets if it meant protecting the poor. He just see—it started with the IMF riots when he was a in the um, in the 90s, when after the oil boom, the IMF also moved in on Venezuela and demanded that the government raise the price of oil in Venezuela. You can imagine—they have they're the swimming in it. They've demanded that, that uh, heating fuel prices rise, that, that cooking uh, fuel prices rise, and that the price of food be shot through the ceiling. And uh, there were riots in the street. Three hundred people were gunned down. He was an officer. He said, "I am not going to order mine. I'm not going to shoot my own people. I'm not going to shoot Venezuelans in the street. I'm Venezuela. I'm not going to do it. So he, he got some officers together and made a vow that they would never let this happen again.
3: Let's
1: let's hope that when the crap hits the fan uh south of the border, anywhere around the world, that there are more Hugo Chavez's in, in charge of the uh the people or with the guns. The exactly. Well, anywhere, exactly. Now, Greg, uh secret prisons, did he have any?
2: No. Uh there's no Guantanamo, there's no sorry, you know, private manning for, in prison. According to the opposition, there are ele- he has he was holding he's holding eleven Political prisoners, but those include you do have to understand people who killed people during the attempted coup d'etat and, and If you shoot someone trying to overthrow the government, I think you can pretty much expect to end up in prison
1: he could have been he could have um, uh, been a great friend of the Americans. he offered to sell them oil at a very stable price, fifty dollars a barrel
2: yeah he cut a deal with Clinton and then he tried through me he, and I said look i 'm just a journalist, I know I can pass public messages, but i 'm not a he wanted to cut a deal. He cut a deal with Bill Clinton, and Bush wouldn't accept it. You know why Bush wouldn't accept it? Bush wanted the price of oil to go through the ceiling. You know what? Chavez, Chavez needed a stable price. He didn't care if it was high or low. He just needed a stable price so he could move this heavy oil.
1: Like long-term. Because remember, yeah.
2: he's competing against the Koch brothers. See, the Koch brothers have this huge refinery. They're his number one customer on the uh, Texas uh, Gulf Coast. That's why they're trying to bring in the Canadian XL pipeline from Alberta, because that oil from Alberta, from burning up your tar sands, will go it goes straight down to the Flint Hills refinery on the Gulf Coast to uh, replace uh, the oil for Venezuela. Because, Canadian, you guys give it away cheap. man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's filthy oil, but to give it away real $33 a barrel cheaper than Venezuelan, Oil it will replace now that's worth about two billion a year to the Koch brothers. That that's what the XL pipeline business is all about. It's a, it's it's not like anyone's run out of oil at the Gulf Coast refineries. It's just that they don't want to pay the Venezuelan price because they cannot use American oil. American oil is too light for
3: those refineries.
1: So, so they, with, uh, are looking forward, uh, Venezuela, you are hopeful that uh, the, the the new guy in charge is going to be is going to be able to continue with Chavez's program and, his, and, 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 and shrine his legacy?
2: I think even if the opposition wins, which is unlikely, uh, but even if the opposite, it's not going to change. People in Latin America have finally figured out that they're quite rich, that they've got a lot of oil and minerals, and, you know, Canadian mining companies have been the big mineral takers, and they finally figured out, hey, well, how, come we're, how come this money's just sucking up north? And so... Brazil is booming. Argentina, which you know was starving, literally starving, is now one of the big booming nations of the planet. Um, Ecuador told the uh, Occidental Petroleum Chevron to stick it. They're booming, booming economy. Venezuela, obviously, so it, it's not going to reverse at all. That money staying down there. Um, the 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 uh, they are no longer privatizing their industries. It's all reversing, going back to the money back to the people, and I don't care who's in. You can't run in Venezuela and say we're going to give up the oil for nothing anymore. That, that, that game's over. It, it's a new world. Chavez kicked off uh, a new world. And, you know, like I say, he was willing to – he faced the death many times. He kept telling me, I'm ready. He said, but, you know, it's a, he told me, you know, it's a, it's a very complex game of chess, and I'm a very good chess player. You know, so right. I, I think he – you know, he got the checkmate. He, he, he went out his own way, and the, uh, the, the continent is uh, different because of it. And he really tried to reach out by selling oil, by the way, to Alaska and, and, and in the poor in New York, Texas, Cleveland, Boston, at a cheap price to community groups so that he could bypass the oil companies, hoping to have some type of direct trade with uh, North America on oil instead of going through the oil companies and, you know, and the State Department. But, you know, that, that's, the ne- that's another step for another person.
1: Well, and, you know, anyone who can uh, tell the IMF to go take a flying leap is, uh, uh, is to be enshrined. Uh, Greg, where can people watch your documentary, The Assassination of Hugo well, Chavez? Well,
2: we're, we're making it, my foundation, I have a not-for-profit foundation has agreed to make it, the BBC film, The Assassination of Hugo Chavez. Available uh, without charge. It's like 24 minutes long. Just go to gregpalast.com, G R E G P A L A S T.com, gregpalast.com. And really, it's uh, downloaded for the next couple, next week or so. All right.
1: I've linked up to your site on my homepage at The People can just click on your name. Greg, always right. a pleasure. You know you have an open invitation on this show anytime.
2: Thank you. You really uh, allow the real stuff to come out, and I really appreciate it.
1: Greg Palace, thank you. Bye. Open lines when we come back, The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back, friends. Now, until the top of the hour, ask Richard anything. That's what I like to call this segment. Open lines, if you will. I have a number of topic uh, suggestions I'd like to throw out there. Um, But, you know, there's so much going on in the world. Let's face it. Right now, the world is on fire. Uh, I have a couple of funerals to go. Uh, to this week, you get to a certain age, and it's it's interesting when you first, uh, you know, you get married in your twenties uh, or thirties. You go to a lot of uh, baby uh, showers. I went to one, a baby shower today, actually, a very rare event these days as I approach the half century mark. Um, but tomorrow and the next day, funeral, funeral, funeral. They just keep coming, and it rem- it's a constant reminder uh, the uh, how fragile is the human condition. And I always think it's later than we think. Not only because i 'm getting older, we 're all getting older, but it just when you when you go to a funeral and you 're standing in front of an open casket, you cannot help but think it 's later. time is marching on, and if you look at the world events, whether we 're talking about uh what 's happening in the United States, and I know the mainstream media is pumping this idea that we are in a recovery and the and the job the, the, the stock market is you know is it an all time high i don 't buy it i don 't buy it there are no. I'm not an economist. Don't you don't have to believe me, but scratch beneath the surface, dig a little deeper. Don't just listen to these 30 second business sound bites you're getting on the radio. The jobless numbers, if you look at them in the U.S., are not good. They're not good. All of these job gains are mick jobs. We have uh, uh, teachers uh, and and uh, and highly skilled people being laid off in the United States, and those jobs are being replaced by. Service industry, restaurants, bartenders. Uh, people's real income is plummeting, and the stock market. Why is it at? Why is it going through the roof? Because there's a lot of a lot of that. Um, you know, eighty-five billion dollars a month. The Fed is pumping into the U.S. economy. That's going into asset acquisition. So you've got you've got the one big box store chain buying another. All right, their stocks go up. But then they lay everybody off and they close stores. So the bottom line looks great. There are no fundamentals behind this surge in the stock market. It's going to crash. And you cannot continue to pump $85 billion of fiat currency month after month after month on or ad infinitum. And there's... Uh, I've I've read where where uh, certain forecasters, top trend forecasters and stock analysts are saying, or sorry, financial analysts are saying, we're going to see a point where the United States, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. is going to start dumping ten billion, uh, sorry, a hundred billion dollars a month, and then it's going to be ratcheted up five hundred billion a month. It's just it's the only way they can keep this Ponzi scheme afloat, and when it comes crashing to the ground, and it will, you can imagine the mayhem in the streets. We're starting to see signs of that in Europe. Just recently it was announced, I believe in Cyprus, where the the government there is putting a 10% tax on deposits, all bank deposits. They're confiscating money, Directly from bank account holders in Europe, and people are rushing to ATMs to get their money out as fast as they can. How long is this going to go on before people start saying "enough is enough" and start maybe I don't know picking up a gun and saying "we're revolting"? We could see revolutions happening again in 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 Europe. Food riots—they're coming, folks. I hate to be the 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 bearer of bad news, but. Batten down the hatches. If you think we're heading for a recovery, I believe, I believe, you're sadly mistaken. I hope I'm wrong. God knows I hope I'm wrong. A little bit of good news, though, when we come back, an old friend of the program, an old friend of mine, going back 20 years, the publisher of and the author of The Seal of the End Times, Nils Hammerin, I thought he was swept away by Hurricane Sandy. He is alive, he's well, and he's coming up next here in The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back. Let me take you back to uh, October 2012, and the uh, eastern seaboard of the United States and here in Canada just got slammed uh, by uh, Hurricane Sandy, the most destructive tropical cyclone of uh, 2012. And uh, it was the second costliest hurricane in the United States, 285 dead 175 kilometer uh, per hour winds. Uh, that was back uh, third week of October, uh, October 22nd to the 29th. And they're still recovering. And I have to be honest, I thought I lost a very dear friend. Nils Hammerin is the author of The Seal of the End Times, the, uh, the publisher of End Times Press located in Somerville, New Jersey. And his apartment got slammed and uh, I, uh, I couldn't reach him. For weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I got a letter from him. I read it on the air. I was so pleased. And then again, he disappeared. And I called his, his home number, uh, every couple of weeks and nothing. And I feared the worst. This afternoon, I got a call, a voicemail from Nils Hammerin. He is alive. He is well. And I'm delighted to, uh, to have him on the program. Nils Hammerin, how are you, my friend?
4: Richard, I knew if I disappeared, you would miss me.
1: Indeed. I, uh, I tell you, I was worried. And I started to receive emails, Nils. I even received an email from someone uh, who apparently heard on another radio station somewhere in the United States that you and, and your lovely bride had been taken to a FEMA camp. The rumors were flying out there. Nils, take me back to October uh, 2012. You're in your apartment in, in Somerville, New Jersey. What happened?
4: It was really a frightening night, uh, Richard. We had been warned Sandy was coming. Uh, we were told it was going to take a right-angle turn when it got just to the southern part of New Jersey and would head directly west. And for most hurricanes, this is completely crazy. Here's a storm that's a 1,000 miles across, and it's going to take a right-angle turn and hit New Jersey. Uh, everybody figured, you know, this is a little bit in error. There's going to be uh, a modification, you know, and the weather department is going to turn out to be wrong. But they were dang right on. They were bang on. That storm made a right-angle turn. It head right into the lower part of uh, New Jersey on the shore. Those people got clobbered. Uh, People around Staten Island, which is a little bit higher up, maybe 50 miles from where the uh, center of the storm went ashore, New York, Bay, all that was getting a huge rise in the tide. And water actually went into the subway system.
1: Right. What about you in Somerville? What happened at your place?
4: What happened here was that we were getting a normal storm. Winds were very severe. Every once in a while, the winds would build up and would... uh, bend the windows, and the glass in the frames was like bending, but nothing happened. Then all of a sudden, we began feeling a, a same a strange sound. that kept coming back. Uh, about every minute, it would start making a humming sound in the, the uh, window frames and so forth, the screening. And then it got more loud and more loud, and finally there was a shock an actual shock that shook this building, and this building is actually made of uh, brick and cement. It's been here a 100 years. This building shook, and the roof lifted off. As the roof lifted off, uh, the TV wire that we have coming from an antenna on the roof began pulling a booster that was sitting on the floor in our apartment. It pulled it up into the wall, and then the wire snapped and uh, we didn't know the roof was coming off the building because it's a secondary roof there's two roofs but the primary roof was ripped off and that landed in the parking lot doing tens of thousands of dollars of damage to the cars in the parking lot and then uh, we began having water pouring in here We, we were running looking for barrels buckets anything we could to catch the water because once water gets into an apartment building like this, it does extensive damage. And uh, that went on for all night. Water was pouring in. We couldn't stop it. Uh, finally, the storms uh, let up, and the, the rain has slowed down coming in. Although Somerville only got about four inches of rain, it seemed that it was raining all night. Uh, to make a long story short, We eventually were inspected by the state of New Jersey. Our particular apartment was very, very badly hit, and we were ordered out of the apartment. And uh, we had only days to get everything together. We have the remains of a business here for many years, uh, all kinds of parts for uh, assemblies that we make, uh, that sort of thing. The records from businesses going back, you know, 20 years, addresses of people, letters, all kinds of personal correspondence thrown into boxes. We wound up with 66 boxes of things from the business and from personal uh, living.
1: Let me just remind folks, uh, Nils Hammerin is joining us from End Times Press. This is the first time I've been able to speak to to Nils since last October. Uh, when his uh, apartment building was devastated by Hurricane Sandy, and I, quite frankly, feared for the worst. Now, I got a letter from you. When was that? Around Christmas time. It was around December, I seem to recall. Several months after, I hadn't heard from you. I kept trying to call, and then, I tell you, I was so happy to get this letter, knowing that you were okay. Where were you at that point, when you wrote the letter?
4: Well, you believe, uh, I believe, too, that big corporations have no heart. But what happened to us was really... uh something that you should broadcast in a church. We had a company that owned our apartment called Oxford Realty Group in New Jersey. They're huge. They're a nameless group of people. You never meet anybody that owns it. It's so huge. They seem to own whole whole villages. They found out that we were in trouble in our apartment, and they supplied us with another place to go immediately paid for the moving, and covered all kinds of costs. They were so friendly and so helpful, I could not believe it. Uh, We could do no wrong. They got us out of here, and they helped us in every way they could. They supplied us with a beautiful, much larger apartment, uh, which actually was on ground level. And uh, when we looked out the, the window in the morning when we got there, there were deer in the backyard.
1: So now you're back in your new, your, your, uh, your old place that's been rebuilt, is that correct?
4: That's all completely rebuilt. Okay. We're in it now. I'm talking to you from a phone that's in my old office. Uh, however, our electric systems are really a mess. Uh, the computer doesn't work. Uh, most phones don't work. Uh, our fax is down. The only line that works is the line we're on right now, and strangely... For a while, we would receive calls on this phone, but we could not call out. We couldn't even get a uh, a dial tone.
1: Well, Nils, it's great to uh, to be in contact with you again. I'm so relieved to know that you and Beth are are okay, and uh, let's uh, let's plan on doing another show. People have been emailing me uh, for months saying, "Where is Nils Hammerin? is he okay?" Uh, and uh, so here you are, and. Um,
4: Richard, Great to have you a back. lot to talk about. We should get a show together because there are things I want to tell the people. They have to know these things, and uh, it, things are changing. Things are happening.
1: Oh, tell me about it. Let me, very quickly, uh, the investiture of uh, the new Pope. Uh, pope Francis, the first Jesuit, uh, yeah. named after, supposedly, Francis of Assisi, who founded the Jesuit order. Now, according to papal prophecy uh, of St. Malachi, the, this pope is supposed to be the last pope before we usher in the end times. What, what, what is your take on that, very quickly?
4: My uh, feeling about it is it's possible we have uh, something there that we have to think about with Argentina, their association with the SS troops of Germany. That is a long story, and it's very complex. We could get into it, get some of the details. People don't know half of what happened in Argentina at the end of World War
1: II. We'll do that. Nils, it's a date. Say hello to Beth, and I'm so so pleased to be speaking with you and knowing that you're safe and sound.
4: Yeah, it's a nice uh, pleasure to talk to you and hear your voice there, Richard.
1: All right, Nils, stay well. Bye-bye. Nils Hammerin, End Times Press. Okay, do we have time for, uh, is it Dave and the Beaches? Or the beach, I should say. They're very particular about how we describe that neighborhood here in Toronto, the beach. Dave, welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you.
5: Um, first, I just wanted to call in because uh, I listen to your show um, when I can and um, tonight's show about Venezuela, um, just to kind of uh, to, a rebuff, I've been to Brazil, I've been to Argentina, I've been to Peru, and I've also been to Venezuela. Um, Chavez was not a good person for for the country of Venezuela for many reasons. I, quite, I don't agree with anything that that fellow said. Um, he, he may have done some good for the poor, but he did enormous damage to the country. Um, I've never seen such poverty in my life as in Venezuela. There is no infrastructure. Um, the, the money that that must be Venezuela must be sitting on is staggering and it must be somewhere, but it's not in the infrastructure of. Venezuela well,
1: give me the time frame, Dave, that you were in Venezuela. Are we talking pre nineteen ninety nine or after or were you there before and
5: after? Oh no, I was there in two thousand and ten
1: okay, so in nineteen ninety nine before chavez uh, took over, I mean uh, these are u n statistics I have not been you have, but uh, this is what i'm what i've read i've been told, and i've talked to other people who've been and so forth. We're okay. talking about over fifty percent poverty at that point. we're talking about cardboard shacks millions of uh, people living in these cardboard shacks around Caracas and 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 after Chavez uh, they're,
5: they're still there. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, I, I'm no I, doubt I, that I he had
1: know. no, he didn't eradicate it, but if you look at the level of poverty before, we're talking now now uh, uh, Greg Palast says it was somewhere around 60%. I've read about 49%. Now, it's about 30%. Still, that's, that's a lot. That's crushing. But 30 compared to 50, I mean, that's substantial. And if you, if you uh, again, I've, I've seen some documentaries and, and interv- they've interviewed people and they talk about now they have access to health care. That didn't exist before. The literacy rate has gone way down. So, it's yeah, uh, it's, it's not where it needs to be, but the process has started
5: okay, but richard here 's my point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you go for a walk in any town or city in Caracas. There are no street lights they 're all burnt out they don 't get replaced. People are stealing the metal sewer grates uh, so you 've got dark streets. you could fall to your death on any main street in in Venezuela right. pretty much right now i, I when I was there, uh, friends would keep forty five gallon drums. Uh, in their showers to store water, because they knew that the water was going to be off three times or four times a week because right, the power right. goes out all the time It's just regular i mean you can't do business and Chavez was building multi million dollar power plants for Honduras, his friends meanwhile his 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 country is going like like i say i i just i I understand what you're saying about maybe it's dropped, but I think it's dropped for other reasons. I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a fraction of the oil that Venezuela has. They have air conditioned, uh, you know, uh, streetcar stops. Right. Well, here's the problem. Venezuela should be a superpower. Well, it should be, but the problem is. But it's nowhere near that. No. The crime rate in Venezuela, Richard, I'm sorry, but. There are 800 murders a month in the city of Caracas.
1: Right. I, I, I have nothing to compare it to, uh, Dave. I appreciate hearing from someone who's been there, and I, I'd like no. to know more. But here's the thing: uh, the, the the situation in, in in Venezuela considerably different than Saudi Arabia, because we're talking about apples and oranges when you look at their when their oil. You've got heavy crude in Venezuela. It costs more to extract, so they're not able they they're not able at this point uh, to. Um, to ensure sort of long-term stability. Uh, they need long-term stability in prices in order to extract that oil because it costs considerably more to extract it and refine it. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that Chavez extended this olive branch to the United States saying, I will give you $50 a, b- a barrel. I will insure you for 30 years, I will give you $50 a barrel for oil. And if he had that long-term funding, he would have been able to extract it um uh and, and make use of it but i, I don't know what's happened since then
3: mm-hmm. uh since he made well, that
1: offer it was declined obviously, and uh then the then came the coup attempt but uh it it's interesting to hear the other side and and um it certainly uh, deserves you know further scrutiny, but um,
5: I honestly think that you should have a a, a, com, a show that's completely devoted to the Venezuela. I have friends down there, and okay. i don't want to take up all your time i know, I do got to run I just think that you know. There's a lot more to this than that fella knows. There
1: always is, and we'll do that. Thank you, Dave, The Conspiracy Show. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Saran from Zuma Radio AM 740.
1: Welcome aboard friends. We are living in strange times to be sure. Recently heard from scientists who are saying that Mars was capable of supporting life at some point in its past. I think we all knew that, but it's always interesting to hear that sort of officially uh meanwhile uh an interesting story about uh, crystal skulls uh there are there's a um a school of thought of course that uh these crystal uh, these quartz crystal aztec skulls uh were um you know they're sort of pre-columbian uh artifacts uh from mesoamerica yet they supposedly created by indigenous people and there, there's just no. There's no way those people should have had the ability to to, uh, to, to construct these amazing artifacts. And now uh, there's a a story on an interesting website called C and E N, Chemical and Engineering News, where scientists are now saying these crystal skulls may in fact be fake. A potpourri of analytical techniques reveals the purported Aztec sculptures are not bona fide. So that is uh, just one of the many stories that you can uh, check out at the website richardserrett dot uh, in the uh, in the news section, and I invite you to check that out. So we want to say welcome once again to our new affiliate KVOK AM five hundred and sixty in Kodiak, Alaska. Welcome, welcome KVOK. AM560, which is, I understand, primarily a country music station. So very, very honored and pleased to be part of their programming lineup and uh, hope to uh, to hear from the good folks in Kodiak in the coming weeks. The other story that I wanted to bring to your attention, this was interesting because once in a while, the uh, UFO ET issue actually percolates to the surface and, and sort of breaks on through to the other side, as the great bard Jim Morrison <laughs> used to say. Uh, in fact, UFOs hovering over ICBM sites made the front page in the Washington Post not too long ago. Uh, and, you know, from time to time, we, we talk about UFOs and ETs on the program. I, uh, I think it's important to do so because that's just a, a, this huge field that um, we're not getting the truth about UFOs and ETs, and I love to hear from UFO experiencers, and we're going to hear from one right now, a lifelong UFO experiencer, uh, a victim of alien abduction, uh, has experienced quantum events, paranormal phenomena, and he's here to discuss his disturbing close encounters of the third kind with what he's discussed, uh, described as odd non-human beings, uh, which really began when he was but a child. I first met Posey Gilbert in New York City at the New Yorker Hotel back in October, and uh, just an incredibly uh, sincere, likable, knowledgeable, well-spoken individual, and as I say, a well-known UFO experiencer. He's appeared on national and local TV, in newspapers, at conferences, uh, talking about his many experiences and his videos of UFOs over mid-Brooklyn. He's also a talented musician, writer, filmmaker. He was the co-producer along with the late and equally gifted Carolyn uh, Barnes of the Space Bridge cable TV show over 10 years. He is co-founder of the Moonstruck Group in uh, New York City for fellow experiencers. Posey Gilbert, great to have you aboard the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
6: I'm fine. I'm
1: glad
0: to be here, too.
1: You know, regrettably, we only have an hour, and I could sit and talk with you all day. That's uh, no problem. So let's... Um, let's just take me back to your to your childhood and uh, you know give me sort of the reader's digest version your first encounter with uh ETs
6: okay well i can go back to when i was 2 years old and um i'm 62 now and um basically it began there when i really noticed something was wrong um it, to put it quickly um was a fight between me and my older sister she wanted to see some teen program i wanted to see to see some cartoons i lost the battle of course and she was watching her her uh teen you know teen dance show and i went over to the window and i was making as much noise as i could to disturb her all of a sudden from a clear night sky started falling a turquoise snow at least it looked like snow but it was glowing And as it fell on the windowsill, it disappeared. And I just thought it was beautiful. So I called uh, my sister, Teresa. That's my older sister, my older brother, Chuck. Oh, come look, look, look. It's pretty, it's pretty. Chuck takes a look at it and says, Oh, no, they're coming back. And at that instant, I looked at the sky. And even then, at two years old, I was wondering why I was looking at the sky at that moment. Chuck just lost his mind and started screaming they're coming back. I turned to my sister and asked her who's coming back. And she went pale as a ghost, just started grabbing Chuck and shaking him. And he couldn't come out of it. That moment she ran upstairs to get my mother who was upstairs paying out our daytime base, babysitter and brought him back, brought her back down. But by the time they came back down, this stuff stopped falling. As soon as it stopped falling, Chuck came out of it. Now that was so long ago, I began to think maybe that was just a dream that I had. I was led by, well I'll say, by a lady, a voice, a woman's voice, to a bookstore in my thirties. She said, go in there, there's something for you. I go into the store, there's all these expensive books. I don't have like a hundred dollars to spend on a table book. As I'm walking out, there's a little box next to the door and it says Fate Magazines. 50 set. I said, well, this must be it. And I open it up and it opens up to a page that says Fall of the Blue Snow. Whoa. So I take a quick look at it and I see that it says in 1953 there was a fall of a glowing blue snow. And I immediately, I paid my little 50 cent and went and read the article.
1: That was in Brooklyn, the, fa- the falling snow? You were in Brooklyn was at the in,
6: time? I originally was, I'm originally from the Bronx.
1: Okay, the Bronx, okay.
6: And at that moment, I said, then that wasn't a dream. So I called up my brother, and I asked, I said, um, Chuck, do you remember the time that that blue snow began to fall? And his answer was, you remember that? You were just a baby then. I said, Yeah, but it was real. He says, Yes it was real And I said, Well who's coming back? He went silent. And all he would ever do when I asked that is he would go silent and then he'd make this funny little grin and make a shrug. So then I started that's when I knew that okay, if that was real, there's a whole lot of other little things that I thought were dreams as I was growing up. Okay so mother taught us they were dreams. But I later, my, and when I was in my 40s, my mother had, had later confessed that she saw the same entities that I saw growing up.
1: So take me from, uh, from the age of two to your next sort of vivid memory of, okay, an, of an encounter. Okay, so
6: vivid memory is this is a daytime encounter. I'm cutting it short, all right? Um, I was six years old. I know I was six because I started school at seven. I was at home with my younger brother, Ralph. He's the, you know, my Irish twin. And um my mother, we know, had called us to have our lunch and because me and Ralph would always um talk during nap time and we wouldn't go to sleep, we normally end up getting a spanking. She didn't like to do this so she separated us. I finished my lunch first. She sends me into my sister Teresa's room and then she sends my babe, my younger brother Ralph up into the her in my father's room, which was separated by the boys' rooms, which was normally our bedroom, I finished first. I'm go, you know, walking to the bedroom and I'm, you know, basically cussing my mother under my breath, murmuring under my breath that um I'll be glad when I go to school and I haven't got to take a nap every day. And I walk into my sister's room and I'll just tell it the way it was. Sitting at the top of the bed, like on the bed headboard, were two little silhouettes. They were about my size, but they had big heads and long arms, long fingers. They had four fingers. But they were like silhouettes. It wasn't like a shadow. It was like if you would go to touch them, you would actually fall into them. At the bottom of the bed, there sat one up on the bed, and it, too, looked just like them. And I just stopped at the door, and it's like when they saw me, they jumped up like they were shocked that I could see them. And they began to run around the room so fast that they became like a blur, but they were moving so fast it's like I could hear their clothes flapping, you know, and the breeze they were making.
1: This is the middle of the day.
6: This is the middle. Of, this is 12 o'clock. Understand, the wind is a bedroom. The wind, you know was a small room. So her bed was, like, right in front of the window. Right. And the window shade was up, and there was golden sunshine, new-time sunshine coming through the window. And they converged on the window, and the window makes a noise like shoo. It goes completely black, like a silhouette, like I'm looking at a black uh, rectangle. Right. And you get this sense of vertigo. Because it's like you're looking down a long black hole, and actually, there's the air in the room is like being drawn into it. They went into this blackness like shoo shoo shoo, and I grabbed hold to the bed because I thought I was going to be sucked in. So I'm holding onto the bed, and all of a sudden the window goes shoo, and I can see the outside again. And like I always did, anytime I had something weird happen to me, I would always go to my mother. Mom never made it hard for me to talk about anything. So all in one breath, I go to the kitchen. I say, um, Mom, actually mother's what I always called her, Mother, how come when I went into Reese's room, there were three little black men in there, and they were all black, and they, ran around, they jumped up, and they ran around so fast, and then they ran through the window, and the window turned into a big black square. I said square because I didn't know the difference between the rectangle. A big black square and they was sucking the air in the room, and I thought I was going to go into the window, so I grabbed the bed, and then all of a sudden the, the, black, rack, the black square disappeared, and then everything was normal again. My mother just looks at me and says, um, that's nice. Don't tell your father. He'll think you're crazy. Go into your room and go to bed. Now, my room, the thing about the way the house was arranged all my, from the kitchen to the, my sister's room, all the windows faced directly east. But because there was an air shaft there and there was a factory next door, a factory roof next door, um, my window faced to the southeast.
1: Okay, Posey, I've got to take a time out. Hang on. Okay. We'll come back and we'll continue. Lifetime experiencer of UFOs, alien abductions, quantum events, and paranormal phenomena, musician Posey Gilbert here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And I'll get back to my conversation with lifetime UFO experiencer uh, Posey Gilbert in just a second. Just a heads up, what's coming up on The Conspiracy Show in the coming week? Ron Patton, the uh, editor-publisher of Paranoia magazine, will be here. I met uh, Ron for the first time uh, down at a UFO conference in in Phoenix, and um, a big fan of the magazine, wanted to get him on the show, and uh, we'll do that next week. And also, Russell Targ, uh, this is, uh, the uh, I guess, the co-founder of of the, um, uh, the Stanford University uh, uh, st- Paranormal Studies. They studied remote viewing and psychic abilities at Stanford. Uh, this is the guy that started it all, uh, the remote viewing program at Stanford University, and he's got a new book out called The Reality of ESP. Russell Targ will also be here next week. The, fo- the following week, uh, a special one-hour um, uh, commemorative of the, or commemoration of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Some might, some might call it the state execution of Dr. King and uh, uh, William Francis Pepper who uh, was the last lawyer for James Earl Ray will be with us he was also the one that launched the civil trial in Memphis which exonerated James Earl Ray and also part of that uh, program will be former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney Uh, that's uh, coming up in two weeks time following that one of the great trend forecasters of all time Gerald Salente will be with us um, coming up as well, Joseph Farrell, and uh, we'll talk crop circles with Patty Geer. So if you want to stay abreast of the program, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com, say hello at Richard Serrett. Posey Gilbert, uh, lifelong UFO experiencer. It seems like, Posey, before we get back to your story, your whole family has been, uh, need. can I use the word targeted?
6: Uh it's, been in the family line, it goes all the way. It go like they would have all the stories that like my father's side of the family, they were Cherokee. My mother's side of the family, they were Germans. All right. You know, my grandfather was German. My mother, my grandmother was black. My grand, my grandfather from my father's side was actually African. He was a, he actually brought over as a slave, and. His wife was pure Cherokee,
1: and they all had stories. They all
6: had these stories, and they but they called them hints and um, spirits and demons. But you used to call them window the same things. You used to call them window peepers. I remember when I met yes. you in New
1: York. You didn't even you didn't want to go by the window. You still have a problem going by a window, sitting by a window. Yes, I do. I can understand why, Posey.
6: Um Even there in the day, even like I say, if you see my home, um, there's no way you can look in from the outside. Now... Uh, even in the daytime.
1: Okay. Take me back to the, to when you were six, and you just had this encounter with these three uh, like, three well,
6: little... My mother gave them the name Quick Shadows. That's what she would call them. Quick Shadows. Everybody knows them. Some people call them shadow people now, but right. my mother called them Quick Shadows. They're, you've probably seen them yourself. You'll see something move out of the corner of your eye, Yes. and then when you turn, it's gone. That's why she calls them Quick Shadows. Yes. But if you see them in the blackness, she called them... Gray shadows. Okay. Because they're a little bit faintly gray, grayer than the background.
1: What leads you to believe that these were not just interdimensional beings, these were well, extraterrestrials? The,
6: I, that's what I say. I don't necessarily say that they're ex, exo, um, extraterrestrials. Okay. I call them exodimensionals. And because we can't really tell, because even if they're extraterrestrial, they're using dimensional doors to get here, they're not flying through all of that space.
1: No, that is a problem. I've
6: seen, actually, up in the Bronx, in the company of 50 other people, we saw a portal open in a clear night sky to reveal another sky that had a lighter sky than our sky. And out of that sky came a huge, what looked like a moon, which danced around and then expanded. That same sighting, we also saw this, what I call a plasma craft. Back then, I didn't know what to call it because it looked like a cloud with right angles. But you can actually see this cloud because somebody photographed it. It was photographed from the sky lab above mm. the earth. When we saw it, it was down low to the earth. Had you, have you ever been taken aboard a craft? Okay, yes. And I say yes and no because my mother, see, what you got to understand is my mother constantly told me that they were dreams.
1: She was protecting you.
6: Yes. Only when I was 40 did she finally explain that she saw these same things and had the same kinds of experiences.
1: What was that like when she finally—and we'll get back to the craft in a second here— but what Mm -hmm. was that like when you were 40 and she finally sat you down and said, Posey, you weren't dreaming these things. These things happened. How
6: how did that affect you? I got mad as hell. I said, why, if you knew that I wasn't wasn't dreaming, why didn't you tell—why did you tell me it was a dream? And her explanation— was, I have a little boy in the room that's crying and won't go to sleep because he says there's the devil's under his bed. What am I going to do? Walk in there and tell you, yes, the devil's under your bed. Now go to sleep.
1: Right, right. Makes sense.
6: I couldn't say any more to that. No, no. And she had been taught the same way by my grandmother. Don't talk about it. And she didn't even know that her sisters were experiencing it until her grandmother, until basically she was talking about me to one of my one of my aunts. Um, she, you know, like my grandmother never would go to sleep with a light out. She always had the radio on. When they got TVs, she always had the TVs on. When my mother came to visit me and I was living by myself, she noticed the same thing. And when she was going back to Virginia, she stopped off at her sister's house in Washington. And, you know, she had a small home, so she had to sleep in the same bed with her. And she tells my mother, I'm sorry, Maddie, but I don't ever sleep with the lights off and with the TV off. And my mother just flippantly, because that's the way she was about it, says, oh, are you like Butch? That's my nickname. Are you like Butch? You see them little men, too? And my aunt looked at it and it says Butch sees them also and she just broke down and started telling my mother about how she would see him and when she told as they call it, um Sam that was my grandmother's name when I told Sam about it she said for me to shut up and don't ever mention it to anybody but her so she didn't they didn't talk about it amongst themselves they only talked about it to to my grandmother who told each of them never to talk about it cuz people will think they're crazy
1: Okay, let's get back to the uh, the craft um you, which you believe you may have been taken aboard.
6: Okay. That was I believe to have been a, a mass abduction because um it would took it took place over two nights. And again, I thought it was a dream because that's the way I was raised. Um all this dream consisted of was I woke up in my house, there was nobody there, I heard a bunch of noise in the street. I went to the house looking for my family. There was eight of us. Nobody was in the house. I go down to the street, and I see everybody's in the line. You have policemen and anybody in, like, authority. They were standing on the side, and they would just push. Like, I walk up to a policeman and said, what's happening? And he just pushes me in the line and says, move along. And that's all uh, That's all they did. And for that whole first dream... It consisted of me being in this line, walking, you know, one, 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 one. I never saw where we were going at the end of the, until I got to the corner of the first dream. you know?
1: Yes, you're out there I on the street in your pajamas. pajamas. And
6: there is something that looks like a, uh, a gigantic orange, orange-yellow mushroom in um, Claremont Park. And I could see that's where we were all going. And um, when I got to the gate, where it was my turn to go in, I looked up, and there was what me and my brothers called saurians. Now, this is a word—understand, this is the 50s. People weren't talking like this in the 50s. I called—me and my brothers called it saurians because we thought they were dinosaurs that had evolved uh, into intelligent things.
1: Reptilians.
6: It, that's what people say, but like I say, still to this day, I'll call them a saurian. Okay. And— um, the thing about it, people say that they hate us. They don't hate us. They consider us as younger siblings, but they don't like us because we're spoiled. They say we stink and we foul up the mother. We're killing our mother. That's what they don't like, what we're doing to the earth, because they're from here too. So me being my little fresh self, I told them, you better not be here tomorrow, because when when uh, Air Force sees you, they're going to blow you up. And he looks at me and he says, we'll just simply shift into another dimension where they can't see us, but we can see you. And that's where that dream ended. The next night, now, if it was just a dream, dreams don't begin like this. From the next night, I'm right there again, and he pushes me and says, move along. And I step onto this big craft, and as I walk into it, it's even bigger on the inside Than it is on the outside. And I remember I'm put on, I don't know how I got there. I'm suddenly put on a table. I'm completely naked. And it's like, uh, plastic. It's not, it's cold, but it's not like, it's not like metal cold. It's like plastic, hard plastic. But if you try to move, it's like you're stuck to a magnet. And across from me, there's a white young man. Now, my parents approved. I never saw my mother or my father naked that I can remember. They never talked about sex that's not something you learn it when you grow up. That's the way they were.
1: That's the fifties.
6: That's the that's it. Well also they're from the country and that was the way they were down there, strict. Right, right. Well, I'm looking over at this guy and not to be crude, I'm seeing how swollen his dimensions are and I'm shocked that first of all we can get like that, but this guy had red hair. It was the only first time I ever saw a real person with real red hair, but I didn't know that we had red head hair down there, and uh-huh. if that would be red too. Right. And he was yelling at them because they were, you know, moving things over. Me. And he, and they was yelling at him, he says, he's just a baby, leave him alone. And then he tells me, he says, whatever you do, fight them, don't ever get into them. Because he was like me, it seemed like everybody else was just under this this mode where they you just did what they said. He could talk to them. And he was telling me, to fight them, fight them, fight them. Don't speak to them. Don't give them any answers. Don't tell them anything. And, like, they're moving between us. And, like, one comes between me. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm curious. I said, is everybody here? Because I wanted to know where my parents were. And they said, all the people on the west side of the grand of uh, the 3rd um, Avenue express that's a it used to be an old subway system elevated subway system to go into the Bronx come to Claremont Park all the to the east of that go to Katona Park okay i you know then i asked why is your ship so funny because i he says what you like what do you mean funny and i guess he didn't understand my term But I said, why is it bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? And he laughed. He says, oh, this is not a ship. He says, we make an envelope between the dimensions, and we travel in that. When you see it, you call it a ship, but it's not a ship. It's an envelope.
1: Now, how were they communicating with you, Posey? Telepathically? Were they
3: actually... Well,
6: see, the thing of it is, I just remember I would ask the question... And I know the thing was big because I couldn't see its face. And thank God I didn't. I probably would have died. You know, but it was like it was answering me. But it was big. It was very tall. You know, and I don't think it was like it wasn't like the little gray guys. I think it was one of the mantises because normally the mantises are in the control of the little guys. And it it was just very anything I asked it. It was just. It kind of thought I was funny in a way because of my, I was so, you know, I was, rather than being scared, I was just asking so many questions.
1: And uh, so you're, what were you on, sort of an examination table? What were they doing yes. to you? What did they do now, to you? the
6: trick of it is, like, I got to see the trick of the way, uh, the way I have to do it so that I know that it wasn't a dream. Let's jump 30 years into the future, right? I'm like 36 years old. I finally met the space group about abductions and all of this, and I met some people that used to live in the Bronx. And one of the young ladies, she lived on the east side, and they were just talking about their experiences. We hadn't mentioned anything about it. She was just, she was just you know, like the way the group was. You'd come in and you'd tell your experience, and people would listen.
1: Right. This is the Moonstruck group.
6: No, this is the space group, which the Moonstruck group evolved out of. Okay. And the Moons, this group actually came from Whitney Stryber's group, the uh, communion group. Yes. Well, this young lady comes in and she talks about this thing that happened to her in the Bronx. She used to talk about how these little black things would come down through the from the roof and come into the bedroom and get her. And she once started talking about there was something in the, it's a a lake in Cotona Park, or Indian Lake, and there's a rock there. What everybody wonders about this big rock is somebody carved, it's a boulder, but somebody carved steps into it. But why do you need to step on a boulder that's not going anywhere? Right. Well, she says when they got, she was climbing up this boulder, there was a big yellow building. Hmm. And she described it the same color as I saw the mushroom. And she was taken into that. Same year? And then there was another one, like I had a band, and, you know, we were talking about our background, and I always talk about my phenomena. And I asked him, I said, you ever have any really strange dreams? I didn't tell him what I was hinting at. He says, yeah, well, I used to live up there by Cortona Park. I said, what? Cortona? I said, oh, you ever have any strange dreams about that? He says, yes, I was running from this huge, and he describes this yellow, same yellow, bulldozer that was chasing after. I said, well, what happened? He says, I don't know. I think it caught me. Hmm. So years later, I'm meeting people, and even though they're not saying they saw the big mushroom, and even though they're not saying they went to Claremont Park, they're saying they went to Cotona Park.
3: Is so on how the would east side? This
6: be just a dream if these people who didn't know each other we're having the same experience that basically I had, but on the west side.
1: Were you very quickly because we're going into a break? Were you able to determine that they were they were having these experiences the same time yes. period? What
6: I found out is that everybody that lived in that area, when you meet them, they have um, same the same types of stories from the and same era that they've had alien encounters. Okay, gotta I go, think What they it. were doing was just tagging us.
3: Posey will be they right knew back.
6: knew that was going to break apart.
1: Okay, we'll be and right so they back. Could follow us. We'll be right back. Posey Gilbert stays with us. He's a well known UFO experiencer, a lifetime experiencer who has appeared on national and local TV and newspapers, conferences, talking about his many experiences and his videos of UFOs over mid Brooklyn. He's a talented musician, writer, filmmaker, was the co producer, along with the late and equally gifted Carolyn Barnes, of the Space Bridge cable TV show. Over 10 years, and he is the co-founder of the Moonstruck Group in the city of New York for Experiencers. Uh, Posey, so you were saying just before the break that uh, you believe what they were doing, these we're uh, entities, us. were tagging you.
3: Yes,
6: because um, when I ended up leaving the Bronx, basically, I don't know if you knew about it up there, but back in the Reagan days, they were talking about how bad the South Bronx had just deteriorated. Which it had. Basically, it looked like a war bombed-out war zone.
1: Sure, we remember the Fort Apache, the Bronx movie with Paul Newman. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Yeah, Fort Apache, okay.
6: Yeah, and uh, it's not as bad as they say it was.
1: Never is. Brooklyn was
6: much worse, believe me. But um, I had to leave there because basically they were burning down the landlords or the slumlords were burning down their own houses. And they were hiring people to do it. Well, I moved to Brooklyn, but see, okay, I say I moved out here because of that, but I didn't know that this was part of, I'll say, the guy's plan, because when I got out here, that was when I was finally able to start taping them. They would let me videotape them.
1: When you say videotape them, do you mean the craft or the actual entities? The
6: craft. Okay. I have problems with the entities. Um, You know, I've seen the human ones. And like i say there's the 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 one I met a woman when I was six years old, the story I was telling before um when I went into that room and I was laying down and the window was facing to the uh southeast, I saw what me and my brother used to call the walking stick walk out on the roof in broad daylight, and I'm like said I'm like maybe a quarter of the block away from, and I'm thinking to myself. Don't she know that they'll kill her if they see her? And it's like she heard my thoughts, and she swivels her head toward me and looks looks right at me through the window from the rooftop that she's on, and says, "I'll just simply make them not look at me." Mm. And then the sound went down in of the world went down in the room, and all of a sudden these little strange-looking black hands started coming from up under the bed, under the bed. And going back, I rolled up against the wall. It felt, the again, with the four fingers, it felt up and down the side of the bed and went slowly back down, and the bed gave a sudden shudder, lifted up and moved away from the wall. And then I rolled to the middle of the bed, and the hand came up on that side, did the same thing. And the bed did that little shudder again, moved back to the wall, sat down. This part, I don't understand. I cross my hands over my chest, you know, left over right, just like they put the mummy in a tomb, and I lay back down. Next thing, I'm out on the roof, and I'm looking at three human beings. And in the corner of the roof, there's a, looks like a bead of mercury with a pie slice cut out of it. At that door, there's standing a man. He's got platinum blonde hair, very, very light blue eyes, You know, all of them are beautiful. Um, Even the men are beautiful, because that's the word you'd have to say they are. Not feminine about them, but they're beautiful.
1: Angelic? Would you describe them as?
6: If I was brought up in the church, which my mother would not do to it, we didn't go to church. We were allowed to make our own decision. I would have thought they were angels. Um, They had on what I would say today is spandex, one of the corniest outfits I've ever seen. They didn't have ray guns. They didn't have the bubbles on their heads. They didn't have those pointed angled shoulders. They didn't have great big insignias. And uh, I couldn't figure out how the hell do you get your clothes on? Because there's no zippers and there's your boots are made part of, are part of your
1: Pants. Again, this is the 1950s, so yes... Yeah, but
6: in the 1950s, you had re- buck Rogers with exactly. the lightning bolts, and this is what they're supposed to look like.
1: Exactly. Posey, we've got another take another time out. Come back okay. and uh, continue more of our conversation. The abductions of Posey Gilbert here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. A patient has had 75% of his skull replaced with 3D printed implant, a 3D imprinted implant. And monster mosquitoes are poised to strike Florida. Uh, these are just uh, two more of the stories that you can find uh, posted on my In the News section at the website richardserrett.com. www.richardserrett.com, your portal to the conspiracy show where we are talking with longtime UFO experiencer Posey Gilbert. Uh, Posey, so back on the roof, up on the roof.
6: Uh, you... Um, this is in- where I met the three. In- now, I just thought they were, honestly, I just thought they were white people. But I knew that they weren't from here, because first of all, they were too beautiful. Second of all, they were so tall. Now I stand six foot five, and I know today that if I was this size, I would still have to look up to see them in their face. Now, I'll get just get back to this real quick because it's very important what's in this happens here. Um, this guy with. Um, Standing by the door, he had this little thing that looked like a straw coming out of the side of his helmet, which was, I thought was st- a stupid helmet because it was made out of the same material that his suit was made out of. And it looked like the bucket helmets that the Egyptians wore, you know, like the Egyptian soldiers yes, wore. Yes, yes. And I had no idea what that was. You know, today I know, you know, we see him on stage all the time. But that's what they had. He had something like he could hear through it and a... Uh, uh, microphone to speak in, but it was a very antiquated Bluetooth, I guess you'd call it now. And now right in front of me, there was another guy. He had on the same outfit, but I could see he had very, very, very blonde hair, almost gold, and extremely intensely blue eyes, you know? But he, again, was not the main one. All they, the men ever did was look at me, smile, and then they would be like watching. I guess they were looking to see if somebody was approaching but in front of me, there was this woman. She's the only one that spoke. And she was just like the men, very, very muscular, but she did not look like a man. You know, you see these muscle ladies, and they look like men. And when we get muscular, we get very squat like gorillas, but they were very tapered and tall, and they just their movements were just graceful. And she was trying to talk to me. But I wasn't paying any, being a little boy from the 50s, who pays attention to an old woman? You know? Right. She's trying to talk to me, and I'm just looking at the guys with these stupid suits on. And she finally catches my attention by saying, this is the universal number. And she rolls this, her hands taught me, she has like, it looks like a lady's compact. That's what I first thought it was. But let me describe the woman. She didn't have a helmet on. But she had all of this long 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 hair it was like a reddish hair but I've never seen humans with that kind of hair yet with all these strange hair colors nothing like that and her hair was so long I would say it went to the back of her calves and I'm looking at this and I'm wondering is that real hair and what would it feel like but I wouldn't dare touch it you know Right. She had these intensely green eyes, very large, too. That's another thing. But they weren't scary large. They were just large eyes, that's all. Very pretty. And she rolls her hand toward me, and that's when I noticed the difference between their hands and ours. Now, I don't know if it's that they have lower, um, they don't have any webbing between their fingers, or it's just that big, because they're so so big, their joints are longer. You know? Right but um she has this disk and it has a circle it looks like a symbol inside con three concentric circles and she says this is the universal number with it you can see the future the past and the present it can be changed it can change any number but it can't be changed by any number
3: hmm.
6: and then she says by adjusting these and she starts moving the then i see she can move those little they want Just etchings, they were like little gauges. And she says, by aligning this, you can see other levels of your universe. And I says, she then pushes it toward me. I say, this is for me? And she says, yes, this is for you. And I, of course, grab it. The moment I grab it, my mother's screaming at me from the door, why don't you wake up? And to show you how real this, quote, dream was, I started scrambling around the covers. It's nighttime now, which has never happened with me. I don't sleep during the day. I'm scrambling around the covers, and I go into a fit because it's not here. And my mother said, what are you looking for? And I said, it's the universal number. Now, meanwhile, I'm crying and, you know, tears and snot and the whole nine yards. The woman on the roof gave me the universal number. She said I could have it, but she lied to me. She took it back. She said I had it, and my mother, again... Knowing me, he just said, look, I told you, when you wake up in the bed, it's a dream. So stop acting, you know, stop acting stupid before your father thinks you're crazy. You know? Right, right. And Did you ever meet that? It. But now, just the trick about this universal number. I found out what it was. I later found out what it was. Oh, really? Yes. Um, I, you know. And the reason I found out about it—remember John Lennon's um, song, uh, "The uh, Strange Days Indeed."
1: Yes, yes, he had a I UFO. Saw the same
6: song. UFO. You saw the same one as he did. Yes, and Muhammad Ali also saw it that same day.
1: How were you able to verify it was the same day?
6: Because it, I was reading it in an um, article in—I um, think it was Look Magazine or something. Okay. But see, I didn't know that. I didn't know what they saw. I thought it was like, uh, you know, when they said they saw a saucer, they didn't have pictures. No. The one that I saw the picture of was the one that John Lennon's um, girlfriend drew, which was the same thing that I saw.
1: This was when he was with May Pang. They weren't living in the Dakota. They were living where, down in Greenwich Village.
6: No, they were living in the Dakota.
1: In the Daco- oh, they were in the Dakota then? Yes. Okay.
6: And this thing was very low, and that was his point. When I saw it, I was looking straight. I was living in the projects, and I was looking straight off at the thing.
1: Okay. So this is now the 1970s?
6: Yes. Now, the thing of it is, is that, I'll just give a quick description of it. It had a ring of lights around it. It was dancing, bobbing, and weaving. But when it would flip up on its side, because it would flip up and point its bottom toward us, And it would flash these three points of light below it. So you would see a circle of lights with a triangle in the middle of it. And they sent a jet for this thing. And I the first time I ever saw a jet fighter. But it didn't have any, like it didn't have the American, you know, the the Air Force symbol on it. Right. It was just a silver jet, but you could see the rockets under it. And this thing just suddenly stops and says, like, like it's waiting for it. Yeah, okay, well, let's see what you're going to do. And when it got close to it, it just flares up, and it looked like it stretched like a, rubber, like a luminous rubber band, and just shot off. Again, with my band now, I met a young lady who was in the other project. She saw it from a better angle, and she said to her, when the jet came to it, she just saw it disappear. But to us, we saw the flare up and turn into like a plasma that stretched right, right. and shoot off. Okay. Okay. Now, the point of it is, again, I'm telling you this because there's, I was given signals and I didn't know what it was. But anyway, I go back to work that next day and I'm talking about it. And I said, did you see the, hear about the UFO, blah, blah? And everybody laughed at me. And one guy who knew me, he knows I'm a logical guy. He says, Possibly think about it. You can't just come in and say you saw a flying saucer and expect people to believe. You got to have proof. And it was while he had said that, you know, I worked at the Federal Reserve and I was I, at that time I was a currency um, destroyer. And I was doing my work and I'm thinking about what he said. And I said, "Yeah, proof, but you, they never leave you with any proof. What about that stupid universal number? You know, she said that I could have it, then she took it away." And then I started thinking about what she had said. This is a universal number. It can change any number, but it can't be changed by any number. What the hell is that? I dealt with that number every day. 0. Point Depending zero. Depending on where you pin, put it, it changes the value of whatever you put it next to. But itself, you can't. It never changes.
1: Ah, right, right, right.
6: Okay, and I said, oh well, coincidence. What was the other? Oh. With it, you can see the future and the past and the present. Well, yeah, how does that prove anything? And then I thought again, wait a minute. Well, where I'm sitting at in time, I can remember a past, and I can perceive there is something of a future. So where am I sitting in the – where am I situated in time? Point O. But because time is changing there is no real such point in time that time is ever still. Therefore, time does not exist. It's an illusion. Wow. Hmm. Boom. Okay. 2.0. Okay. What was that third one? Oh. By adjusting these levels, by adjusting these, and when she was moving the little gauges, yes. you can see any level, other levels of the universe. I said, Well, that's no way in the world that you can ever prove that nonsense because you haven't got the little unit to adjust anything. And then I thought about it. I said, Wait a minute. Thinking about light energy, depending on the pulse, the space in the beam, depends on whether it's ultraviolet, infrared, radio wave, TV wave. Right X-ray, and mm-hmm. that thing, she gave me a lesson of quantum physics, and then it dawned on me when she said she gave me the universal. she wasn't giving me the device, she was giving me a concept, their way of seeing the universe. Now, understand, when me and Ralph were growing up, we were discussing these things.
1: In the and 1950s. nobody
6: paid attention. I'm, I'm six years old, Ralph's five years old, and we're talking about time olds and timeies. And time. We gave them names. Ralph would call them figments, you know? So who's going to listen to that? But what we were discussing, we later found out when we watched NOVA one night, we were discussing quantum physics at five and six years old, mm. but in children's terms. So hmm. who would think that something that made so much sense to us in five and six years old, would really come to be a real physical manifestation in our world. So again, those were not dreams. Now, as for that symbol of the universal number, right? Right. I was, remember when, when, uh, what do they call it, crop circles? And I thought it was funny that you'd mentioned crop circles in your commercial. Yes. um, When they first came out. The one of the first crop circles ever made was what? 0.0. Oh. I hadn't realized that. It was a big circle with a little, what they call grape shot next to it. Okay. And that's what, that's, that was the one with Colin Andrews. Okay, but then there was uh, another researcher, um, what was his name? George Winfield, I think his name was. He had this crop circle from Germany. So you know, I went when I first heard them talking about. After I saw the prop circle, I had to go down and and tell them what that one with the point O meant.
1: So, so uh, Posey, because we're almost out of time here, let me just uh, see if I can sort of summarize this. This universal number, th- the entity was was basically explaining to you how they were able to travel through space, space
6: and time, how they were able to travel through space. How they understand this is the basis of the universe. She was giving us what we're now calling it quantum physics, but this this is what we were given when we were five and six years old.
1: Sounds and like a sounds quick like point in this, yes.
6: they found a crop circle in Germany that had the symbol in it. That's what George Winfield found, but the difference is the circle had the symbol stuck to the outside of it which meant it meant what I call reality, or um, the I call it the I amnity, the, the reality. So it moved that to say that when he asked me, well, what does this mean? I said, well, this symbol that they gave me, she gave me, that's like, I just had to put it as God before the universe, you know, before there was anything. It was only, quote, God.
1: I got to go, but we're going to do yeah. this again. Posey Gilbert, thank you for joining me.
6: Thank you, us. We'll talk Have soon. Have a good one now.
1: All right. Tim Spreen, thank you. Back next week with another show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night.